Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning again. It's the second hour of Mornings with Carmen on this 3rd of August, 2021. Prayers appreciated today for my brother-in-law. His name is Joe LaBerge. Last night, the uh, doctors and nurses, I think actually the nurses in the nursing station, uh, told my husband um, to expect Joe to be placed on a ventilator this morning to help his body combat COVID. Um, And the complicating factors of uh, pneumonia and other things that he has developed along with COVID just in the last couple of days. So it reminded me uh, as we were, you know, talking and praying about the prospect of, you know, Joe not being able to even text with us anymore. I was reminded of an evening that I spent earlier this summer with a dear friend um, named Paul Cunningham and his wife, Shannon. They've been friends for a long time. They're in ministry in La Jolla, California. Shannon is an artist, and she specializes in personally designed and crafted, um, I'll describe them as ceramics. I might be wrong about that. That's what they look like to me. Um, So early in the pandemic, Shannon got a call from a representative of a major hospital in the northeastern United States, and what they were looking for was something that they could give to patients who were going to die alone um, from something that they were calling the coronavirus or a coronavirus. Um, This was so early on that, um, you know, they didn't even really, we weren't calling it COVID-19 yet. So they agreed that Shannon would handcraft and send 100 little hearts. And these little hearts would be placed on the patient's chest and then um, given to the family who were, you know, being barred from being with their loved one as they passed from this life. A hundred, Shannon thought. A hundred people are going to die from this in this one hospital. This one hospital thinks it's going to see a hundred people die from this. And they were going to die alone. Shannon made and sent the first hundred hearts. But by the time she shipped them, the call had already come for another 150. And then for a thousand. And the numbers rose. We now know the toll of COVID. It continues to wreak havoc, not only here in the United States, but around the world. The costs are many. The impacts are yet to be fully measured um, or fully understood. But for families who have lost a loved one, I think of the more than million children who have been orphaned by COVID. I think of the businesses that have been shuttered. I think of the churches that never reopened and now never will. Lives shattered by concurrent pandemics of isolation and mental illness, drug addiction, lost years of education, abuse that's happening in these days in which everyone is closed off from resources and one another. I feel like in the midst of all of that, fights about masks 
might be misplaced. So pause and ask yourself, what would I be willing to do today? In, in what way would I be willing to lay down my life for my friends? Sometimes laying down our life is not as dramatic. It's certainly not as dramatic as what Jesus did. I mean, he actually laid down his life for those of us he calls friends. But what does it look like in my life to lay down my life for the people around me? To lay down some convenience or, yep, some freedom. What does it look like for me to lay down my life for those I call friends? What am I willing to do? What would I be willing to do if it were my child or my parent or my coworker or my friend or my pastor who was going to be the next one to contract COVID? And I didn't know that they had an underlying complicating issue that was ultimately going to result in their death. They weren't going to be one of the ones who got better. Would I mask up for them? (laughs) I would, and I am. Next up, Dr. Jeff Barrows from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. We'll be right back. Joining me now, Dr. Jeff Barrows from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Jeff, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. So sorry to hear about your brother-in-law, Joe. I will uh, be praying for him. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, the, you know, like uh, like other families, the frustration is that we can't go see him. We can't take him things. We can't, you know, hover. So it's probably yeah. good for him that we can't hover. It's probably good for the nurses that we can't hover. But, you know, hover we wish we could. Um, mm-hmm. Like everybody else, so yeah. let's talk about uh, let's talk about COVID. Um, cases are on the rise. What? Where do you feel like we are today in this conversation? Maybe give us some good news and some bad news related to COVID. Well, I'll try and give you some good news. Uh, I guess the good news would be around the vaccines. But there's been a shift, as everybody knows, from listening to the news and the CDC in the last couple of weeks, and the shift is really because of what is known as the Delta variant. Um, There have been other variants that have come out. Uh, The Delta variant originally started in India, and uh, a couple of pieces of information have uh, become known in the last couple of weeks that really are are important for your listeners to be aware of. Uh, The first is that studies that look at the number of viruses that live within our nose and mouth if we are carrying the uh, the infection with the delta variant that number is a thousand times more than previous uh, variants or the original infection a thousand times more viral particles so that's why it is so much more transmissible so every time somebody that is carrying this virus sneezes or coughs they're releasing into the air a thousand times more viral particles that can then go to the other people within the room which gets to the point that you made in the introduction is, is the importance of wearing a mask. So that's one piece of information. The other is that for the first time, 
the vaccines that are very effective in cutting down on the death rate and the illness rate from these infections. Uh, but the vaccines against the Delta variant are not effective in cutting down the transmission from someone who is vaccinated to someone who is unvaccinated. And that is why the CDC this past week reversed their recommendations for masks. And again, uh, and I know a lot of people's minds took a step backwards, but in our minds just are responding to the data that because people that have been vaccinated can transmit it just as easily as somebody who is not, everybody needs to be wearing masks to protect those, in essence, that are not vaccinated. So I do want to say that CMDA still recommends that people get vaccinated because the vaccines are highly effective in preventing mortality. They're highly effective in preventing hospitalization and severe disease. But when it comes to this Delta variant, they are not protective against transmission. So the good news is, yes, the vaccines are still working. The bad news is, unfortunately, this Delta variant is having its way. Um, anything new on the treatment front? Uh, as you can imagine, lots of questions uh, across lots of people in my family about, you know, is Joe getting this? Is he receiving this? Are they doing this? Da, da, da. So um, on the treatment front, what kinds of things should families be expecting to hear from um, from clinicians? Well, the good news there is that once a patient is hospitalized with COVID-19, um, the odds of them dying in the hospital are much less than it was a year, year and a half ago when this infection or this pandemic started because we have learned especially of the inflammatory component of this infection. So uh, part of the routine treatment is using steroids to kind of uh, temper down the inflammatory response. And of course, there are other drugs that are used, uh, IV, that are uh, fairly effective against the the virus. But in terms of treatment as an outpatient, there really isn't much new there. Uh, we are hearing a lot from our members. They're questioning the drugs still like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. And I've, I've looked at the NIH site, uh, and they're really, I have yet to see a good, solid, well-designed study that shows a high degree of effectiveness with either of those drugs. Uh, there's some smaller studies that aren't as well designed. So I wish we could say that, that hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin is, is highly effective, but I'm not there yet because I haven't really seen a good, solid, well-designed study that shows that. All right, we're going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to pivot to some other conversations related to health uh, and reproduction and, well, frankly, the truth about our physical bodies. That's up next mm. here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Jeff Barrows from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. All right, Jeff, let's um, jump into a subject matter area that is um, complex and really kind of hard to talk about. Uh, talk about. Um, first of all, uh, the whole idea of a do-it-yourself abortion, um, and then the fact that it is happening a lot on college campuses across America, and then efforts to 
um, prevent that, to, to reduce the number of do-it-yourself abortions on college campuses. Um, what's going on here? Yeah, Carmen, this is a, a depressing topic, topic I agree. Uh, and uh, I use the terminology of chemical abortion. Uh, the pro-abortion side mm. will say medical abortion. I, I don't think medicines are designed to kill. Uh, anything that's designed to kill like these are is, uh, is really a chemical. But we're seeing across the country an increase in the percentage of chemical abortions uh, in the entire, uh, when compared to the entire number of women that get an abortion, it's just under 40% now. And last year, California passed legislation, and they always are leading the country in ways that we don't want them to, but they passed legislation that mandated that any any health care facility associated with one of the University of California campuses has to have the ability to provide at no cost to any student requesting it uh, these chemical abortions, which are basically two different chemicals that are taken at home by the patient and that will, if taken prior to 10 weeks, will cause an abortion. And they, these drugs are highly dangerous. Uh, there's a, an FDA, what's known as a Risk Evaluation Mitigation Strategy, RAMS, associated with them, and we can get into that more. But California has mandated that every campus have that ability starting in January of 2023. And in response to that, on the good side, is that last month, Representative Chip Roy of Texas introduced what's known as the Protecting Life on College Campus Act of 2021. And this will go directly against that. If it is passed, it would prohibit any federal funds from going to an educational institution that has a student-based service that does provide abortions or chemical abortions to students of that institution. So the basis for this is that when California or any other state provides chemical abortions to their students, they're doing it with taxpayer money. And it really gets to, to the essence of having us as Christians supporting abortions that we are opposed to with our tax dollars. So I, I'm hopeful that we can get some traction on this, uh, this federal legislation, though with the current makeup, uh, I, I'm, I'm very concerned. All right. I like Chip Roy, man. This is not the first and only conversation that I have had where his name has been uh, lifted up. So I'm going to start following him. I'm just going to, I mean, not like in a, not like in a lurky way, but, uh, you know, checking out what he's doing. Um, all right. Let's, um, let's talk about another story. This is, um, <laughs> this just gets right to the question of whether or not we're dealing in reality or not. Um, medical schools are now denying biological sex, she says with a question mark. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. I can't. I can't look at this story without laughing. It's 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 so absurd. But there was a story this past week where a professor teaching endocrinology, which is the study of hormones, ended up having to apologize because they had the audacity to say and use the terminology of pregnant women. Now. As an OBGYN, I don't know what else you would say, but in this modern 
progressive cancel culture, uh, apparently it's forbidden to say pregnant women. And this uh, this professor uh, issued an apology and even said in the midst of this apology that that they didn't mean to imply that only women can get pregnant, which you scratch your head and say, but isn't that true? Well, of course, in, in the new transgender ideology, trans males or biologic females that are identifying as females can get pregnant. And so that's the reason for the apology. But when it when it reaches the level of a medical school, it's where we've gone really berserk. And it becomes dangerous because biologic sex in medicine makes a difference. Men and women get different diseases. And even with the same diseases that they might experience, men and women experience them differently. They have different rates of getting that uh, particular disease. For instance, uh, heart attacks will present differently in women than in men. So teaching biologic sex in medical school is absolutely critical. And if we give in to this language ideology, it really is going to become dangerous. And there's already several uh, episodes that are surfacing where somebody who is identifying as the opposite sex will present to an emergency room, not not state their true biologic sex. And because of that, uh, health harm has occurred because the doctor didn't realize, uh, for instance, they were dealing with a pregnant woman and they thought they had a, a man who was having a, a different type of cause for abdominal pain. So we have moved from uh, the absurd into the dangerous with this language. Um, so this is a completely different um, subject and one that um, I did not put on the list. Um, but let me, can I ask you just a random question about medical malpractice and how it is defined and maybe how it is most broadly defined? And this actually came up in a conversation with a listener who has a friend who is a veterinarian who has been charged with medical malpractice. But I suspect that's different than like medical malpractice of my gynecologist. Well, in order to have a successful medical malpractice suit, the person who is suing has to show somehow that the medical professional was negligent. Mm. And somehow didn't do something he or she was supposed to do. And if you can, if that person can show that they were negligent, then they can, they will typically have success in the suit. But that's, that's the key is showing that they did not somehow live up to the normal standard of, of care in that particular clinical situation. See, I knew that even with a surprise question, you'd be okay. It's good. It's good. It's like a pop quiz. Um, yeah. All right. One more, <laughs> one, one more quick conversation. And that is about um, social media and misinformation related to cancer. This is so important for your listeners. I'm glad we're getting to this because uh, almost 75% of adults are, are on social media, not just the Internet, but social media. And a lot of them are looking for medical information. And so knowing this, the University of Utah in Salt Lake City decided, let's l- do a study looking at how accurate the information on social media is in regards to cancer, specifically the four most common types of cancer, and that is breast cancer 
cancer, prostate, colon cancer, and lung cancer. And so they had two experts in each of those cancer fields review 200 articles on social media. And what they found is, is really not all that surprising, but they found that one out of three articles on social media is inaccurate. It has misinformation within it. And if that article has misinformation, about 80% of the time, that misinformation is actually harmful. So the word to the wise is that if you are getting your information on healthcare from social media, please, please, please check with your doctor before you follow through on that advice that you're getting. Dr. Jeff Barrows, as always, such a helpful resource. There's a lot more at the Christian Medical and Dental Association, which you can find at cmda.org. Jeff, thank you so much. My pleasure, Carmen. Good to be with you. You too. We'll be right back. We've got to take a break for Breakpoint. When you think about the regular ups and downs of life and you think about the resilience every single one of us needs to develop as children, a uh, good question to ask us, how do we help our kids? How do we raise resilient kids? Kids who are facing all kinds of ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, both in the home and in the school and in the culture writ large. Joining us next, Rhonda Spencer-Wong, author of Raising Resilient Kids. This is Max Locato. Anxiety is not a sin, it is an emotion. Anxiety can, however, lead to sinful behavior. If toxic anxiety leads you to abandon your spouse, neglect your kids, or break hearts, take heed. Jesus gave this word, be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with the anxieties of life. Look for these signals. Are you laughing less than you once did? Would those who know you describe you as increasingly negative and critical? Given the chance, would you avoid any interaction with humanity for the rest of your life? If you answered yes to most of these questions, I have a scripture for you. Consider Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing. He put that hunger in your heart. He put that fire in your soul. His love is the reason to keep on believing. What a joy to be talking today with Dr. Rhonda Spencer Wong. She holds a doctorate in public health. She's an epidemiologist. She's an associate professor in the School of Public Health at Loma Linda University. She is the author of the book we're discussing today, Raising Resilient Kids. Dr. Spencer Wong, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much, Carmen. So you and I are going to have to put our foot to the pedal here if we're going to get through all eight principles for bringing up healthy, happy, successful children who can overcome obstacles and thrive despite adversity, which is the best subtitle to a book I've ever read. So let's uh, let's start here. What is your motivation or your concern behind the book, Raising Resilient Kids? Uh, behind the book was partly my own. I, my youngest is uh, six years old now, and my oldest is 16. I have three kids, but I, I set out to do some research because I didn't like the way, you know, it's a hectic life these days. And I'm a public health professor. I have health promotion programs, and I felt just like um, things weren't working out right. My husband had high cholesterol, high blood pressure, 
than my own. I had high cholesterol, though we were primarily vegetarians and exercising quite a bit. I, I felt like we were missing the mark. So I went to interview people who were over 100. In my community, we have this kind of special designation as this longevity hotspot in the world. And so I thought, why don't I go ask my own centenarians what they tell parents today? All right. And what are some of the things that you learned? Um, well, one of, the, one of the first things I learned was I, I wasn't prepared. Let me tell you, I wasn't prepared. I thought, ironically, to reach 100 years in age and be this vibrant where these people are driving their own car, um, they live independently. I thought to do that, you had to have a, a wonderfully easy life. And mm. what I found was quite the contrary. They had been through so many hardships and, and we call them ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. And these folks, they, they were piling up the numbers. They say, if you have a, a score of six or more, it shortens your lifespan by 20 years. And these folks, they, they had a minimum of four ACEs and mm. one was six. So um, the hardships and they've overcome the Spanish flu, uh, which when I started this research, uh, about eight years ago, it wasn't even a thing. We didn't really expect, you know, this huge pandemic by 20, you know, 2020. Um, so they've overcome it. And so I wasn't prepared for that to find out how they have so much wisdom for how we should be living today. So Rhonda, in this conversation about resilience, let's actually start by talking about resilience itself. Like what is resilience or what does resilience entail? So it depends who you ask that question to. That's kind of a funny question. If you ask it to typically psychologists or even um, some of the physicians you see today, they're going to focus more on your mindset, right? Like um, being strong in your mind and it affects your body, which is true. Um, but what I learned from the centenarians was it's more, it's all of your mind, all of your body and your spirit um, overcoming these hardships. So resilience to me is your ability of your body, mind, body, spirit, to withstand the daily um, challenges that's going to come your way. For example, even the coronavirus, right? And if you get infected or you have a hardship, it's your body's ability to bounce back. So it's really kind of that bounce back strength is what I think of when you ask me about resilience. So I think of it as the difference between a person who's kind of like an egg or a person who's kind of like a tennis ball. And the egg person <laughs> is just not very resilient. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. That's right. And it's your the whole egg, right? Yeah. And, and yeah, that's that's a beautiful way to put it, Carmen. All right. So I am talking with Dr. Rhonda Spencer Wong, uh, and we are talking about her brand new book, Raising Resilient Kids, Eight Principles for Bringing Up Healthy, Happy, Successful Children Who Can Overcome Obstacles and Thrive Despite Adversity. So the counterintuitive part of this, Rhonda, is that there are a lot of parents out there today who are doing everything that they practically can to protect their children from all adversity. So maybe let's um, dissuade them from such an approach. Oh, yes. So th this is kind of a common theme and my own perspective as well. Like originally I was kind of that way too. And we call it the bubble wrapping, the snow plowing, the lawn wing, any sort of heavy equipment. We call it that, right? That's the parenting style. And if you ask your friends um, what, you know, kind of like not what they believe, but what they practice, they're probably going to fall in one of these categories. And it's this belief that we need to protect. We need to do everything possible. Um, the child is now the center and we need to make their life 
um, as easy as possible so they'll be successful, which is counterintuitive um, to what I see the centenarians practicing. They went through the hardships and even in the household, um, the hardships really strengthened them and they were able to um, support each other and then move on together as a family unit. And because of the adversities they went through, even starting in childhood um, and being able to handle these as they grow and, and, and the adversities get more and more, um, they were able to withstand so much and to go on to have an amazing, uh, abundant life. Some of them even became a world-renowned heart surgeon, one of the first in his fields to um, Dr. Ellsworth Wareham doing heart surgery. I mean, in Pakistan, no one had heard of this, and here he is doing this. Um, one is a world record setter. She holds the highest um, mountain here, Mount Whitney in the U.S. and Mount Fuji in Japan for summiting them at uh, 97 and 98. But these were seeds of, wow. of, of resilience that were planted in childhood to reach that. So, and it wasn't from sheltering them. That for sure was not happening. So I like that approach, that idea of planting something in a child. When we come back from a very brief break, I'm going to ask um, Dr. Spencer Wong about this this resilience uh, training that really applies to the whole family, the lifestyle of the whole family, not just the child. Because if you're going to train up a child to climb a mountain, you're probably going to have to go with them. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Rhonda Spencer-Wong, we are talking about raising resilient kids. Um, tell us a little bit about this approach and how it applies to the, the the lifestyle of the whole family. Like, it's not just that I'm training up a resilient child. I'm doing so because we are, as a family, becoming more resilient. Yeah, good question, Carmen. Um, so the, the, the child in, in the common parenting today, the helicopter or the snowplow, really the child is the focus. Um, and it's more about making their life as um, easy as possible so that their sole focus can be on themselves and success either academics or extracurricular, right? Rather than really the family is more the focus. And as a parent, um, we are not here to, you know, 100% shelter them from everything. For one, that's incredibly stressful for the parent, right? And I think it takes um, the reliance off of God. So we're not designed to be the ones who are covering them all the time because we can't. We're not with them um, 100% of their day. So it's really you're going with the child. You're You're helping them to maneuver. But there's more of a reliance on God and prayer that we're going to go through this together. We're not going to shelter you from every, everything. And, um, you know, we're, we're here to support, not um, overly protect. So, and this resilience is really focused more on the family. And part of that is um, making the family the, the, the center with, from your chores, from pitching in, from communication, um, rather than the child. So one of the things that I particularly uh, appreciate about not only your work and the book and the stories that you tell is that you really are laying out a very practical way um, that a family could change the, the the habits of the family in order that our lifestyle as a family moves us in the direction of living a healthier lifestyle. I think we often think of this as just 
you know, very personal, my journey, I need to eat better, I need to sleep more or on a you know more regular schedule, I need to get in control of my habits. But what you're really helping us see is there's a pattern here that children are learning from parents all along the way. Um, and so maybe do a little equipping here. What is maybe a first step that a family could take today to move toward greater health and resilience? Ah, well, this is good. One of the first steps, Carmen, is to take a look as a parent at your own calendar or your own planner, your own agenda, right? Look at it. And one of the things is when you are cleaning out and wanting to improve your lifestyle um, for more resilience, whether you want that for yourself, your family, um, one of the first things you have to do is look at your schedule. Do you have time for it? And it's like my metaphorical time closet. What you put in, you have to take something out, right? You can't keep cramming everything in and saying, I'm going to become a vegan and we're just going to make this happen. Uh, it's very difficult. So you have to start to unpack your calendar and, you know, and start scheduling in things that are your negotiables and your non-negotiable. Your non-negotiable is like you have to get to work. Um, you have to take the kids to school, right? Um, your negotiables are going to be all of the extracurricular activities. And let me tell you something, Carmen, when this pandemic, wherever you are in the country or wherever the listener is in the country, um, we're going to start to open up. And, and um, so my other half of my job is I'm an epidemiologist with San Bernardino Health Department. And as the pandemic climbs and then it recedes, things are going to start opening up and parents are going to feel this overwhelming, immense desire that we need to get out there and do everything we need to do because by golly, we have lost a year, right? So <laughs> instead of three, yeah, instead of three extracurricular, we're not going to have five, okay? And that is the complete opposite of resilience. You have to build this into your schedule. So you're going to need to resist the urge. Um, slow down on all the extracurriculars and things that you have, go slowly and um, intently and start creating time for things like, um, well, blank space for one. I don't know many parents that have blank space on their calendars anymore, which is really sad because one of the best things, one of the best gifts you have is some of these impromptu um, activities that may happen with children or family when you have empty space, right? Um, we were not designed to go 24 hours a day, seven days a week like this. So be careful, be intentional. Um, when churches start to reopen, schedule that as one of your non-negotiables, right? That's what, you know, and, and protect that time. Meal times in the evening, protect that time, right? So that you can sit and gather. And if you are packed like many moms today, um, you're going to have to get over the feeling of, but everyone else is doing it. Well. A lot of people in our country are facing chronic conditions, depression, stress. In fact, stress, even before the pandemic, stress is one of the major, they called it one of the biggest epidemics, even before the pandemic, um, facing our households today. It starts, I, I know this is a long answer to a short question. It starts with your calendar. Start reducing all of those things, right? And take a look and an honest look. And a healthy calendar is going to be a little more balanced between what you filled and that you have this free downtime. So when I think about a healthy calendar, I, I really appreciate the um, the language that you use about blank space. In our calendar, we talk about margin. We want to make sure that there's, you know, margin in every day and margin in every week and margin in every month. And 
Um, and so I, I really appreciate that. I like the blank space idea as well. I like the idea of unpacking the calendar. Um, we need to unpack our calendar and then we can more intentionally repack it, right? I like, I really like that visual image. Um, and that's one of the things that you do in the book that I think is particularly helpful. Uh, you you use a lot of word pictures. You help us see how this might um, be something that we could do over the course of time. It's intensely practical. Um, maybe in the last few minutes that we have, share with us one of your favorite success stories from a family who's actually implemented these uh, principles that you lay out in raising resilient kids. Okay. So I had one um, physician mom. This is prior to the pandemic. The mom came to me and was saying, how, how can she do this? She wants resilience for her own family. She's in residency, which means they work probably, you know, I don't know if it's possible. They, they work probably close to 200 hours in a work week. Um, and they just had no time. And she had a young daughter, three years old, and her husband was also an administrator in a hospital. So they were very busy. And so I said to her, start planning time that at the end of the day, um, you come together, start with your daughter if your husband can't, but that you guys come together um, once you're off work and, and head to the park for some downtime or just walk in your community or some way or in your backyard where you're decompressing at the end of the day together, coming together. So she started this uh, planning and it started with just, you know, one day a week where after work they do that, then two days. And then eventually her husband got on board and it became their family habit that at the end of the day they would do this. We didn't know that the world and, and especially healthcare providers were going to be um, flung into this massive pandemic where they're seeing death and dying on a regular basis with hundreds of people in the hospital. And she said one of the life um, protecting factors that she practiced was this time outdoor, um, reconnecting with her family, um, putting aside the toxic stress that came from dealing with death and dying in the hospital. It really helped her to weather the storm. And she had no idea that putting that habit into practice would protect her from what was to come. So that to me spoke volumes of, of living uh, resiliently like the centenarians every day. I'm wondering, um, as we look at these global numbers related to, you know, the number of kids who are going to be orphaned by COVID, I mean, we're already well over a million. I mean, who knows where the number will end up? You know, when we look forward a generation from now, the question of resilience is going to be huge for the children who survive COVID and particularly those who, in the midst of it, experiencing some devastating life-altering uh, experience like the loss of a parent or a primary caregiver. So I think this is a conversation that we're going to continue to have over time. Uh, really appreciate your contribution to the conversation as a Christian, as an epidemiologist, as a professor of public health, as a mom. Um, so just thank you so very much. Uh, the book is Raising Resilient Kids, Eight Principles for Bringing Up Healthy, Happy, Successful Children Who Can Overcome Obstacles and Thrive Despite Adversity. Dr. Rhonda Spencer-Wong, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. It was a joy. We'll be right back. All right, if somebody uh, called you up today and offered you the opportunity of a lifetime, how would you respond? I'm already living my opportunity of a lifetime, right? And I'm already uh, living my best life. 
Um, because my life is in Christ and Christ is in me. The opportunity of a lifetime is to make the most of every opportunity. The, the opportunity to live life itself is this extraordinary gift. I'm uh, considering the life and testimony of a guy named uh, Wendell Berry. If you're not familiar with Wendell Berry, he has he's sort of this stick to related to where he is and making of the place where he is planted, making that the place of not only opportunity, but witness and service and uh, a long obedience, not only in the same direction, but a long obedience in the same place. Give a little thought today to the place where you find yourself and the unique opportunity that you have to bear witness to the king and the kingdom in that place and what it looks like to be a person of faith in that place over the long haul. This is the opportunity of a lifetime, and it's a lifetime of opportunity. So let's be people who today make the most of it, making the most of every opportunity that God has given us to glorify him and to live in such a way that others would turn to him. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.